Assalamu alaikum brothers and sisters, I'm Sister B and welcome to Islamic Audio Bites. I will be reading the penultimate episode of Stories of the Prophets by Ibn Kathir, which can be downloaded from the Galamullah website. Let's read. Page 214. The Bani and Nadir had now behaved in the same way as Bani Qaynuka. They had likewise knowingly and publicly disregarded the terms of the Charter. The Prophet, peace be upon him, sent them a message similar to that which was sent to their brethren, the Qaynuka. Then, relying on the assistance of the hypocrites' party, returned for a defiant reply. After a siege of 15 days, they sued for terms. The Muslims renewed their previous offer, and the Jews of An-Nadir chose to evacuate Medina. They were allowed to take with them all their movable property, with the exception of their arms. Before leaving Medina, they destroyed all their dwellings in immovable property, and arms, which they could not carry away with them, were distributed by the Prophet, peace be upon him, with the consent of the Ansar and the emigrants. A principle was henceforth adopted that any acquisition not made in actual warfare should belong to that state and that its disposal should be left to the discretion of the ruling authorities. Almighty Allah said, And there is also a share in this booty for the poor emigrants who were expelled from their homes and their property, seeking bounties from Allah and to please him, and helping Allah, helping his religion and his messenger, Muhammad. Such are indeed the truthful to what we say, and those who before them had homes in Al-Medina and had adopted the faith, love those who emigrate to them and have no jealousy in their breasts for that which they had been given from the booty of Bani and Nadir, and give them, the emigrants, preference over themselves, even though they were in need of that. And whosoever is saved from his own covetousness, such are they who will be the successful. Quran 59 verse 8 to 9. The expulsion of the Bani Ad-Nadir took place in the fourth year of the Hijrah. The remaining portion of this year and the early part of the next were passed in repressing the hostile attempts of the nomadic tribes against the Muslims and inflicting punishments for various murderous forays on the Medinite territories. Of this nature was the expedition against the Christian Arabs of Dumat al-Jandal, a place about seven days' journey to the south of Damascus, who had stopped the Medinites' traffic with Syria and even threatened a raid upon Medina. These marauders, however, fled on the approach of the Muslims, and the Prophet, peace be upon him, returned to Medina after concluding a treaty with a neighbouring chief to whom he had granted permission of pasturage in the Medinite territories. Enemy's army, headed by Abu Sufyan, marched towards Medina. In the same year, the enemies of Islam made every possible attempt to stir up the tribes against the Muslims. The Jews also took an active, if hidden, part in these intrigues. An army of 10,000 well-equipped men marched towards Medina under the command of Abu Sufyan. They encamped near Mount Uhud, a few miles from the city. The Muslims could gather only an army of 3,000 men. Seeing their inferiority in numbers on the one hand and the turbulence of the hypocrites within the town on the other, they preferred to remain on the defensive. 
they dug a deep moat around the unprotected quarters of Medina and encamped outside the city with a trench in front of them. They relied for the safety of the other side upon their allies, the Quraysa, who possessed several fortresses at a short distance towards the south and were bound by the contract to assist the Muslims against any raiders. These Jews, however, were induced by the idolaters to violate their pledge and to join the Quraysh. As these Jews were acquainted with the hypocrites, within the walls of the city were waiting for an opportunity to play their part. The situation of the Muslims was most dangerous. The siege had already lasted for 20 days. The enemy made great efforts to cross the trench, but every attempt was fiercely repulsed by the small Muslim force. Disunion was now rife in the midst of the besieging army. Their horses were perishing fast, and the provisions were becoming less every day. During the night, a storm of wind and rain caused their tents to be overthrown and their lights extinguished. Abu Sufyan and the majority of his army fled, and the rest took refuge with the Quraysa. The Muslims, though they were satisfied with the failures of their enemies, could not help thinking that the victory was unsatisfactory so long as the Quraysa, who had violated their sworn pledge, remained so near. The Jews might at any time surprise Medina from their side. The Muslims felt it their duty to demand an explanation of the violation of the pledge. This was utterly refused. Consequently, the Jews were besieged and compelled to surrender at discretion. They only asked that their punishment should be left to the judgment of Sa'd ibn Muaz, the prince of the tribe of Aus. This chief, who was a fierce soldier, had been wounded in the attack and indeed died of his wounds the following day. Infuriated by the treacherous conduct of the Bani Quraiza, he gave judgment that the fighting men should be put to death and the women and children should become the slaves of the Muslims. This sentence was carried into execution. The Prophet, peace be upon him, protects the Christians of Medina. It was about this time that the Prophet, peace be upon him, granted to the monks of the monastery of St. Catherine near Mount Sinai his liberal charter, by which they secured for the Christians noble and generous privileges and immunities. He undertook himself and enjoined his followers to protect the Christians, to defend their churches and the residence of their priests, and to guard them from all injuries. They were not to be unfairly taxed. No bishop was to be driven out of his diocese, nor any Christian was to be forced to reject his religion. No monk was to be expelled from his monastery. No pilgrim was to be stopped from his pilgrimage. Nor were the Christian churches to be pulled down for the sake of building mosques or houses for the Muslims. Christian women married to Muslims were to enjoy their own religion and not to be subjected to compulsion or annoyance of any kind. If the Christians should stand in need of assistance for the repair of their churches or monasteries or any other matter pertaining to their religion, the Muslims were to assist them. This was not to be considered as supporting their religion, but as simply rendering them assistance in special circumstances. Should the Muslims be engaged in hostilities with outside Christians, no Christian resident among the Muslims 
should be treated with contempt on account of his creed. The Prophet, peace be upon him, declared that any Muslim violating any clause of the Charter should be regarded as a transgressor of Allah's commandments, a violator of his testament and neglectful of his faith. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah Six years had already elapsed since the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his Meccan followers had fled from their birthplace. Their hearts began to yearn for their homes and for their sacred house, the Qaba. As the season of the pilgrimage approached, the Prophet, peace be upon him, announced his attention to visit the holy centre, and numerous voices of his disciples responded to the call. Preparations were soon made for the journey to Mecca. The Prophet, peace be upon him, accompanied by seven or eight hundred Muslims, emigrants and Ansars, all totally unarmed, set out on the pilgrimage. The Quraysh, who were still full of animosity towards the Muslims, gathered a large army to prevent them from entering Mecca and maltreated the envoy whom the Prophet, peace be upon him, had sent to ask permission to visit the holy places. After much difficulty, a treaty was concluded by which it was agreed that all hostilities should cease for ten years, that anyone coming from the Quraysh to the Prophet, peace be upon him, without the permission of the guardian or chief, should be given back to the idolaters, that any Muslim persons going over to the Meccans should not be surrendered, that any tribe desirous of entering into alliance, either with the Quraysh or with the Muslims, should be at liberty to do so without disputes and that the Muslims should go back to Medina on the present occasion and stop advancing further, that they should be permitted in the following year to visit Mecca and to remain there for three days with the arms they used on journeys, namely their shimtars in sheaths. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah thus ended. The Prophet, peace be upon him, returned with his people to Medina. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, dispatches envoys. About this time, it was revealed to the Prophet, peace be upon him, that his mission should be universal. He dispatched several envoys to invite the neighbouring sovereigns to Islam. The embassy to the king of Persia, Khosros Barvez, was received with disdain and contumely. He was haughtily amazed at the boldness of the Meccan fugitive in addressing him on terms of equality. He was so enraged that he tore up into pieces the Prophet, peace be upon him, letter of invitation to Islam and dismissed the envoy from his presence with great contempt. When the Prophet, peace be upon him, received information on this treatment, he calmly observed, Thus will be the empire of Hosros be torn to pieces. Heraclius submits to Almighty God and embraces Islam. The embassy to Heraclius, the emperor of the Romans, was received much more politely and reverentially. He treated the ambassador with great respect and sent the Prophet, peace be upon him, a gracious reply to his message. Another envoy was sent to an Arab prince of the Ghazanite tribe, a Christian feudatory of Heraclius. This prince, instead of receiving the envoy with any respect, cruelly murdered him. This act caused great consternation among the Muslims who considered it as an outrage of international obligations. Narrated by Abdullah ibn Abbas, Abu Sufyan ibn Harb informed me that Heraclius had sent a messenger to him 
while he had been accompanying a caravan from Quraysh. They were merchants doing business in Sham, Syria, Palestine, Lebanon and Jordan, at the time when Allah's messenger, peace be upon him, had a truce with Abu Sufyan and Quraysh infidels. So Abu Sufyan and his companions went to Heraclius at Ilya, Jerusalem. Heraclius called them in the court and he had all the senior Roman dignitaries around him. He called for his translator, who, translating Heraclius' question, said to them, Who among you is closely related to the man who claims to be a prophet? Abu Sufyan replied, I am the nearest relative to him amongst the group. Heraclius said, Bring him, Abu Sufyan, close to me and make his companions stand beside him. Abu Sufyan added, Heraclius told his translator to tell my companions that he wanted to put some questions to me regarding that man, the prophet, and if I told a lie, they, my companions, should contradict me. By Allah, had I not been afraid of my companions labelling me a liar, I would have not spoken the truth about the prophet. Abu Sufyan's narration continues. The first question he asked me about him was, What is his family status among you? I replied, He belongs to a good noble family amongst us. Heraclius further added, Has anybody among you ever claimed the same to be a prophet before him? I replied, No. He said, Was anybody amongst his ancestors a king? I replied, No. Heraclius said, Do the nobles or the poor follow him? I replied, It is the poor who follow him. He said, Are his followers increasing or decreasing day by day? I replied, They are increasing. He then asked, Does anybody amongst those who embrace his religion become displeased and renounce the religion afterwards? I replied, No. Heraclius said, Have you ever accused him of telling lies before this claim to be a prophet? I replied, No. Heraclius said, Does he break his promises? I replied, No, we are at truce with him, but we do not know what he will do in it. I could not find opportunity to say anything against him except that. Heraclius asked, Have you ever had a war with him? I replied, Yes. Then he said, What was the outcome of the battles? I replied, Sometimes he was victorious, sometimes we. Heraclius says, What does he order you to do? I said, He tells us to worship Allah and Allah alone, and not to worship anything along with him, and to renounce all that our ancestors had said. He orders us to pray, to speak the truth, to be chaste, and to keep good relations with our kith and kin. Heraclius asked the translator to convey to me the following. I asked you about his family, and your reply was that he belonged to a very noble family. In fact, all the messengers come from noble families among their respected peoples. I questioned you whether anybody else among you claimed such a thing. Your reply was in the negative. If the answer had been in the affirmative, I would have thought that this man was following the previous man's statement. Then I asked you whether any one of his ancestors was a king. Your reply was in the negative. And if it had been in the affirmative, I would have thought that this man wanted to take back his ancestral kingdom. I further asked whether he was ever accused of telling lies before he said what he said and your reply was in the negative. So, I wondered how a person 
who does not tell a lie about others, could ever tell a lie about Allah. But then I asked you whether the rich people followed him or the poor. You replied that it was the poor who followed him. And in fact, all the messengers have been followed by this very class of people. Then I asked you whether his followers were increasing or decreasing. You replied that they were increasing. And in fact, this is the way of truth, faith, till it is complete in all respects. I further asked you whether there was anybody who, after embracing his religion, became displeased and discarded his religion. Your reply was in the negative. And in fact, this is the sign of true faith, when its delight enters the heart and mixes with them completely. I asked you whether he had ever betrayed. You replied in the negative, and likewise, the messengers never betray. Then I asked you what he ordered you to do. You replied that he ordered you to worship Allah and Allah alone, and not to worship anything along with him, and forbade you to worship idols, and ordered you to pray, to speak the truth, and to be chaste. If what you have said is true, he will very soon occupy this place underneath my feet, and I knew it from the scriptures that he was going to appear. But I did not know that he would be from you. And if I could reach him definitely, I would go immediately to meet him. And if I were with him, I would certainly wash his feet. Heraclius then asked for the letter addressed by Allah's messenger, which had been delivered by Tihia to the governor of Basra, who forwarded it to Heraclius to read. The contents of the letter were as follows. In the name of Allah, the beneficent, the merciful, this letter is from Muhammad, the slave of Allah, and his messenger, to Heraclius, the ruler of Byzantine. Peace be upon him who follows the right path. Furthermore, I invite you to Islam, and if you become a Muslim, you will be safe, and Allah will double your reward. And if you reject this invitation of Islam, you will be committing a sin by misguiding your subjects. And I recite to you Allah's statement. Say, O Muhammad, O people of the scripture, Jews and Christians, come to a word that is just between us and you, that we worship none but Allah, and that we associate no partners with him, and that none of us shall take others as lords besides Allah. Then, if they turn away, say, bear witness that we are Muslims. Abu Sufyan then added, When Heraclius had finished his speech and had read the letter, there was a great hue and cry in the royal court. So we turned out of the court. I told my companions that the question of Ibn Abi Qabsha, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, had become so prominent that even the king of Bani al-Asfar, Byzantine, was afraid of him. Then I started to become sure that he, the Prophet, peace be upon him, would be the conqueror in the near future till I embraced Islam. Allah guided me to it. The sub-narrator added that Ibn al-Natur was the governor of Ilya, Jerusalem, and Heraclius was the head of the Christians of Sham. Ibn al-Natur narrated that once while Heraclius was visiting Ilya, Jerusalem, he got up in the morning with a sad mood. Some of his priests asked him why he was in that mood. Heraclius was a foreteller and an astrologer. He replied, At night, when I looked at the stars, I saw that the leader of those who practiced circumcision had appeared, become the conqueror. Who are they who practice circumcision? The people replied, Except the Jews, nobody practiced circumcision. 
so you should not be afraid of them, Jews. Just issue orders to kill every Jew present in the country. While they were discussing it, a messenger sent by the king of Ghassan to convey the news of Allah's messenger to Heraclius was brought in. Having heard the news, he, Heraclius, ordered the people to go and see whether the messenger of Ghassan was circumcised. The people, after seeing him, told Heraclius that he was circumcised. Heraclius then asked him about the Arabs. The messenger replied, Arabs also practice circumcision. After hearing that, Heraclius remarked that the sovereignty of the Arabs had appeared. Heraclius then wrote a letter to his friend in Rome, who was as good as Heraclius in knowledge. Heraclius then left for Homs, a town in Syria, and stayed there till he received the reply of his letter from his friend, who agreed with him in his opinions about the emergence of the prophet and the fact that he was a prophet. On that, Heraclius invited all the heads of the Byzantines to assemble in his palace at Homs. When they assembled, he ordered that all of the doors of the palace be closed. Then he came out and said, O Byzantines, if success is your desire, and if you seek right guidance and want your empire to remain, then give a pledge of allegiance to this prophet. Embrace Islam. On hearing the views of Heraclius, the people ran towards the gates of the palace like onagers, but found the doors closed. Heraclius realised their hatred towards Islam, and then he lost the hope of their embracing Islam. He ordered that they should be brought back in audience. When they returned, he said, What was already said was just to test the strength of your conviction, and I have seen it. The people prostrated before him and became pleased with him. And this was the end of Heraclius' story in connection with his faith. Say al-Bukhari. Attack from the Jews of Khaybar, thwarted. In the same year, the Jews of Khaybar, a strongly fortified territory at a distance of four days' journey from Medina, showed implacable hatred towards the Muslims. United by alliance with the tribe of Gatfan, as well as with other cognate tribes, the Jews of Khaybar made serious attempts to form a coalition against the Muslims. The Prophet, peace be upon him, and his adherents were apprised of this movement and immediate measures were taken in order to repress any attack upon Medina. An expedition of 1,400 men was soon prepared to march against Khaybar. The allies of the Jews left them to face the war with the Muslims all alone. The Jews firmly resisted the attacks of the Muslims, but eventually all their fortress had to be surrendered, one after the other, to their enemies. They prayed for forgiveness, which was accorded to them on certain conditions. Their lands and immovable property were secured to them, together with the free practice of their religion. After subduing Haybar, the Muslims returned to Medina in safety. Allah's Messenger and the Muslims perform Hajj. Before the end of the year, it being the seventh year of the Hijra, the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his adherents availed themselves to their armistice with the Quraysh to visit the Holy Kaaba. The Prophet, accompanied by 200 Muslims, went to Mecca to perform the rites of pilgrimage. On this occasion, the Quraysh evacuated the city during the three days 
which the ceremonies lasted. Sir William Muir, in his book Life of Muhammad, Volume 3, comments on the incident as follows. It was surely a strange sight, which at this time presented itself at the Vale of Mecca, a sight unique in the history of the world. The ancient city is for three days evacuated by all its inhabitants, high and low, every house deserted, and as they retire, the exiled converts, many years banished from their birthplace, approach in a great body, accompanied by their allies, revisit the empty homes of their childhood, and within a short allotted space, fulfil the rites of pilgrimage. The outside inhabitants, climbing the heights around taking refuge under tents or other shelter among the hills and glens, and clustering on the overhanging peak of Abu Qubais, thence watching the movements of the visitors beneath. As, with the Prophet peace be upon him at their head, they make the circuit of the Qaaba and rapid procession between Isafa and Marwa, and anxiously scan every figure, if perchance they might recognise among the worshippers some lost friend or relative. It was a scene rendered only by the throes which gave birth to Islam. In accordance with the terms of the treaty, the Muslims left Mecca at the end of the three days' visit. This peaceful visit was followed by important conversions among the Quraysh. Khalid ibn al-Walid, known as the Sword of Allah, who before this had been a bitter enemy of Islam, and who commanded the Quraysh cavalry at Uhud, and Amr ibn al-As, another important character and warrior, adopted the new faith. Retribution for the murder of the Muslim envoy. When the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his followers returned to Medina, they engaged in expedition to exact retribution from the Ghazanite prince who had killed the Muslim envoy. A force of 3,000 men under the Prophet, peace be upon him's adopted son Zayd's command was sent to take reparation from the offending tribe. Halid ibn al-Walid was one of the generals chosen for the expedition. When they reached the neighbourhood of Mutah, a village to the southeast of the Dead Sea, they met with an overwhelming force of Arabs and Romans who were assembled to oppose them. The Muslims, however, resolved resolutely to push forward. Their courage was of no avail and they suffered great losses. In this battle, Zayd and Jafar, a cousin of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and several other notables were killed. Halid ibn al-Walid, by a series of manoeuvres, succeeded in drawing off the army and conducting it without further losses to Medina. A month later, however, Amr ibn al-As marched unopposed through the lands of the hostile tribes, received their submission and restored the prestige of Islam on the Syrian frontier. Quraysh violate terms of Hudaybiyah, Prophet's army march against idolaters. About the end of the seventh year of Hijra, the Quraysh and their allies, the Bani Bakr, violated the terms of the peace treaty concluded at Hudaybiyah by attacking the Bani Khuza, who were in alliance with the Muslims. The Bani Khuza appealed to the Prophet, peace be upon him, for help and protection. The Prophet, peace be upon him, determined to make a stop to the reign of injustice and oppression, which had lasted so long in Mecca. He immediately gathered 10,000 men to march against the idolaters and set out on January 630. 
After eight days, the Muslim army halted and alighted at Mar Azaran, a day's journey from Mecca. On the night of their arrival, Abu Sufyan, who was delegated by the Quraysh to ask the Prophet, peace be upon him, to abandon his project, presented himself and besought an interview. In the morning, it was granted. Has the time not come, O Abu Sufyan, said the Prophet, peace be upon him, for you to acknowledge that there is no deity save Allah and that I am his messenger? Abu Sufyan, after hesitating for a while, pronounced the prescribed formula of belief and adopted Islam. He was then sent back to prepare the city for the Prophet, peace be upon him's approach. With the exception of slight resistance by certain clans headed by Ikrima and Safwan, in which many Muslims were killed, the Prophet, peace be upon him, entered Mecca almost unopposed. The city, which had treated him so cruelly, driven him and his faithful band for refuge among strangers, the city which had sworn his life and the lives of his devoted adherents, now lay at his mercy. His old persecutors were now completely at his feet. The Prophet, peace be upon him, entered Mecca on his favourite camel, Al-Ghaswa, having Usama ibn Zayd sitting behind him. On his way, he recited Surah Al-Fat, Victory, the first verses of which may be interpreted thus. Verily, we have given you, O Muhammad, a manifest victory, that Allah may forgive you your sins of the past and future, and complete his favour on you, and guide you on the straight path, and that Allah may help you with strong help. Quran 48 verse 1 to 3 That is the end of part 5 of our Prophet, peace be upon him, story. And God willing, the next part will be the final part to our Prophet, peace be upon him, story, and also the final episode of this book. Please do leave a review and rating wherever you listen and do share the podcast with your family and friends. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and we're also on YouTube as a voice-only channel. Do check out our website at islamicaudiobytes.com and our various social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as well. If you'd like to contact us directly, please do so at sisterb007 at gmail.com. As always, hope your day is full of goodness. Aslam alaikum.